Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Katherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group, director of the Center for Understanding in Conflict, and I'm on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And my guest today, and I'm very pleased to have her, is Michelle Smith. Michelle is the founder and chief executive officer of Smith Financial Strategies Group based in New York City. She's been a financial advisor since 1988. And before starting her independent business, she worked for decades at firms such as Merrill Lynch, Payne Weber, now UBS, and Wachovia Securities, now Wells Fargo. In 2004, she developed a specialty overlay on her financial advising of working with divorcing individuals. And as a result, she's become one of the top certified divorce financial analysts in the country. Welcome, Michelle. It's fantastic to have you today. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. So I thought we might talk today a little bit about the need you saw when you started the, your divorce work and what you did to develop your practice and how it's working. So what led me to start it is a lot of people walking into my office with their financial advisory needs post-divorce and not being able to accurately recall some simple things such as the length of duration of the alimony or spousal maintenance they got. Or when I asked questions about maybe some assets that were due to them over the next five years, maybe they divorced somebody who had stock options and they got a part of them, right? It was people not really being able to instantly recall their deal, some basic aspects of the deal, and some things that aren't necessarily on instant recall, like what you're due to get five years down the road. Most people easily know what they sold their house for and what they're going to split the proceeds at. But what made me look at this was, okay, so why is this phenomenon happening? And with women, they were intensely ashamed that they had no recall. So it really got me to dive into the process to see, besides really good matrimonial counsel, who were the financial people involved in the process? What did and you find it, out? That it was not many personal financial advisors, and rightly so, because at that time, you know, 10, 15 years ago, forensic accountants, traditional accountants that specialized in valuing businesses or doing forensic tracing, you know, they aren't in the personal financial advisory space. It was way more, I'd say, institutional level as a service to lawyers. And so there was really a lack of personal financial expertise in the actual process that also understood divorce, right? Because it's very different to weigh in as a financial advisor, not knowing divorce rules and being an expert in divorce while also doing financial advisory work. So that's a very relevant distinction. And I made it my business to understand everything I could about divorce, law. 
I sat in courtrooms. I went to the American Bar Associations. I call it, you know, Family Law 101. I went to conferences. I gobbled up everything I could for a couple of years straight on divorce and your finances and really carved out this niche for being a personal financial expert in the space of divorce. So, you know, it's really interesting because I think there's two things that you're saying there. One is the expert part, right? So what is the subject matter of divorce and the need of the client? But there's also the personal side, right? So the personal relationship to money and the personal relationship to divorce, I mean, those are very highly emotional topics. And the idea that this is a service to the client more than to the lawyer, or at least as much as it is to the lawyer. Talk about that. That's super important. I mean, look, if a lawyer hires you as a financial person, and then you are entrenched with the lawyer and quote unquote, their client in the process, yes, technically they bought the client to you, but it also becomes your client if you're a specialist. And, you know, most people, most people, gender neutral, right? Men look at it a little differently. Women come at it differently. But at the end of the day, most people want to know in their divorce negotiations, am I going to be okay with what I'm agreeing to? And one of the things that I do with the lawyers, right, is help frame that, am I okay? Will I be okay if I make these choices? Very quantitatively, but not in a user-friendly way, not just like a bunch of spreadsheets with Excel charts and math. Everybody wants to know, can I live with this deal? And frankly, this is all it comes down to. As you know, you and I have talked about this tons. When you're trying to make compromises that feel quote unquote fair, if you can add that layer of, and if I agree to this compromise, and if I'm being told it's fair, and also a probable outcome, no matter how I choose to get divorced, show me how I'm going to be okay. And that's where people like me enter to do these modelings and these what-if scenarios in non-jargon, user-friendly, non-shameful ways to say, this is why you'll be okay or not. And if it's the or not, then we have to go back to the drawing board and figure out other scenarios. It's really interesting, I think, Michelle Smith, how people relate to money, you know, and what that means. Am I going to be okay? Or what do I need to do in order to be okay? Or what can I expect that will change? And also kind of this idea of feeling like they negotiated a good enough deal for themselves that they can feel okay about the way it went down. Because money is a way to pay the bills for sure. But money's also a way that we judge each other, right? It represents power and, and success or not in our society. It's complicated. It's super complicated. There's no question about that. And in divorce, you know, I still often see, I don't really see a complete equality when it comes to the comprehension of the numbers. And I'm choosing those words carefully because for now, I'm going to be gender specific and say that from the divorces I work with, there's still a higher percentage of women who chose in the marriage to not handle what they would consider the more complex financial issues, right? The investments, the taxes, you know, they may have a very good understanding on cash flow and income and expenses, and maybe they're in charge of the family bank account to pay bills. But 
When it comes to really understanding the nuances of the family financial situation, I still see a discrepancy in what I'll call economic balance and power within the marriage. And so, unfortunately, when that happens and then there's a divorce, fear starts screaming, right? And fear makes people do crazy things with money. And so part of this is to really unravel all of it, right? Unpack it and say, okay, let's really see what we're dealing with and how we can put the emotion over here and get the facts on the table to deal with what's available and is everybody going to be okay once we split it, right? You can look at your divorce and say, I just want to come out of this with what I need, right? Simple needs-based analysis. That really needs to be coupled with your attorney and someone like me saying, okay, if this is what you need and there's money available to be split or paid to meet your needs now, is that number what we would consider a probable outcome if you weren't doing collaborative or mediation? So both need to be tested. This is Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller, the host of this show, and I'm talking today with Michelle Smith. This is WVOX 1460 AM and Dialogue on Divorce is here on alternate Wednesdays from 5 to 5.30. Michelle, you talked a little bit just a while ago about the differences between men and women, at least in terms of the fear of feeling like there won't be enough or not understanding how there will be enough and what that's going to mean. Can you talk a little bit more about the differences between men and women? And I understand this is a generality and not that, you know, every single man or every single woman like is like this. But since you seem to mention that a difference, what is your observation about that? My observation after dealing with hundreds of divorces all across the net worth spectrum over the past number of years is that, and yes, there are generalities here, but they, they are relevant and important to bring out, right? And there will always be outliers. We're not talking about the outliers right now. I'm talking about the generalities and my experience. Men really often view the divorce negotiations as a business deal. There is this much, there is this much to be split, there is this much income, now there are going to be two households, and what can I afford? And what is my lawyer telling me is the standard, right? Marriages are economic fact patterns when it comes to divorce. If you look at it that way, it sounds a little cold, but it is really how a man will look at it. What is the economic fact pattern and what are all the variables that go into this? Women don't tend to look at it that way. They tend to start, again, by being nervous if they didn't have control of the money, if they didn't really look at the tax return, they just signed it at 1130 at night on April 15th, right? Hmm. And so it comes down to the approach, right? Most people that have children, especially, will agree that they want their kids to be okay. And by default, wanting your kids to be okay should also include wanting your spouse to be okay because you cannot walk away from this business deal and shut your briefcase and shut your computer and walk away when it didn't go your way. This is your wife. This is your husband. These are your children. And if they're little, you're going to have to be engaged with each other for decades. So it's really the initial approach and men will often more analytically look at this and say things or send spreadsheets at 1 a.m. 
assuring her how okay she'll be, and then getting really mad and angry when they're not quickly absorbing that they'll be okay. And women will get that and view it as like an incoming hand grenade, feeling like information is being forced and they're trying to be forced into making decisions before they really understand what they're looking at. So again, it's more style and delivery than it is content. Well, I think you're also talking about the reference points that men and women use in order to determine whether or not the deal is, you know, quote, fair. You know, so, you know, how are each person, I mean, ultimately it may come down to the same thing. Am I going to be okay? Am I going to be able to keep doing X, Y, or Z thing I still want to do? Or are my children going to have to move or not? You know, what does that mean? But that the way men process the problem and the way that women process the problem are different. And they're thinking about different things in in that process. No doubt. And truly, I, I mean, I'm not just pulling that example out of the air. And I know you see this too. You know, men will put a spreadsheet together and a binder of all the relevant backup and kind of serve it, right? Like a tennis, like a tennis serve and say, well, what do you need a week for? You know, what do you even need a month for? Like, here's everything. I'm being transparent. I'm showing you everything. This is what it means. Look at tab two. I created a post-divorce budget for you. You're going to be fine. And, you know, it's wonderful to have somebody that organized and to serve it up that way. But you can't have the expectation that that person who's never dealt with this is going to be fine or, for that matter, trust it, especially if there were other betrayals in the marriage, right? Some people initially can't separate financial, you know, fidelity from financial infidelity. And it's a reasonable thing to be nervous about if there was infidelity on another level to say, well, how can I trust you with anything? That is where people like me come in, in conjunction with great lawyers like you, where you sit down and you can communicate to the other attorney, look. I understand his or her frustration that these numbers should be easily absorbed, but we're going to need three to four weeks. And I promise you, after three to four weeks, we're going to have some good groundwork laid for her or his understanding. But your client needs to just chill out a little and let this unravel, knowing that we are actively working on educating the non-sophisticated spouse. And it really goes a lot smoother and faster if that time is allowed in the beginning. It truly, truly, it doesn't feel like it, but it's a helpful act. Michelle Smith, it sounds like in some ways you're talking as if to convince someone here, you know, hey, that we need to take the time we need to take in order to do the understanding and the processing before we can go through the numbers, because usually that binder comes with a proposal too. You're going to be okay under my proposal. Here's why. And here's my proof. And to say, listen, we can't absorb the evidence, like that we can't absorb the numbers and the proposal at the same time, because there's a natural suspicion. And especially when there's been an infidelity, but even when there's not, you know, you said you would love me forever and now you're not, or, you know, somehow rather, I think if in, in the scenario that you're positing, if the husband is choosing to leave the marriage, you know, there's a betrayal there of trust regardless of the circumstances. Oh, no doubt, right? And what happens there too that can cloud it emotionally. And again, all of the emotions are valid. You know, this is not an attempt to say 
forget about how you feel, forget about what was promised, forget about if there was fidelity or infidelity. You know, there is a loss here and it is divorce is different than death. You know, when someone dies, there's often an immediate shrine that's like up and everyone remembers all the amazing things about the dead person. None of the bad stuff in divorce. It's the opposite. Yeah. And no one died even though there might be fantasies of someone dying. No one died. And so you've got to kind of parallel path this grief with this anger. And there's not a shrine in a divorce where you're saying, oh, my gosh, but all the wonderful things about her, I'm going to remember those and forget about all the fights we had, right? So this really comes down to really from the beginning, the starting point of your divorce matters. If you didn't have good communication during the marriage, don't expect it to magically be great during the divorce. It may temporarily get worse. You know, it's yeah. so funny that you say that because I think that people often hope against hope that somehow the person they're divorcing is not the person they were married to. And somehow, yeah. miraculously, there's going to be a shift and they're going to want different things or say different things or communicate in a different way. And in fact, it gets more intense, not less intense, the dysfunction in the communication. Absolutely. Right. I, I say this all the time. I cannot fix what was broken during the marriage at the time of the divorce. If you did not do marital joint financial planning, how can you expect if you didn't have anything to do with the money for 20 years that within four weeks, me and your lawyers are immediately going to be able to get you a result, right? How do you expect if you're the spouse that didn't include the other spouse in the financial issues of the marriage for him or her to understand it all in a month. We can't fix what broke during the marriage or what was constructed during the marriage the moment the divorce happens with this expectation of immediacy, right? Everybody processes differently. The facts are all different emotionally, but it really comes down to understanding that whatever was constructed or broken during the marriage the lawyers and the financial people cannot fix in 24 hours once you walk into our offices and say, okay, get me out. Absolutely true. You're listening to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller. We're here every other Wednesday on WVOX 1460 AM and WVOX.com and also available on my website, www.westchesterfamilylaw.com as a podcast. And I'm talking today with divorce financial analyst Michelle Smith about men and women and divorce and money. And Michelle, why don't you give our listeners your contact information in case they have any questions for you? I can be reached via email at msmith at smith, F-S-G, F for Frank, S for Sam, G for girl dot com. Thank you very much. Michelle, how have you seen this change, the relationships of between men and women and money and divorce during the years you've been working in this field? I don't see a big change, Catherine. I really see, okay, so let's say now we're going to be gender neutral. There could be a woman that came into the marriage with trust funds or inherited property where, and the husband's working, and jointly they had this life, and maybe she promised him, don't worry about it. We're going to be okay. We're going to, I'm going to have an inheritance. I'm going to share it. We can spend more than you're making. And I'm choosing to stay home with the kids. You know, I have trust funds and we're going to be okay because I'm going to inherit money. Similarly, 
Men can say, you don't need to worry about this. I'm making a lot of money. We will be fine. I'm saving for retirement. We're going to sail off into the sunset once the kids are in college. We should have, you know, X numbers of dollars in the bank by then. And don't worry about it. You don't need to go back to work if you don't want to, right? A lot of discussions like that do take place. And I don't think they're disingenuous. I really don't think at the time they're disingenuous. When people are happy, you're making retirement plans or next chapter plans. It's when it gets unhappy that this gets ugly and somebody or both people are hanging on to what was promised. And right, they're not wrong. They were promised that. And maybe somebody did let go of their income stream. And now they're being faced with they didn't save enough money. They're now being cut off on what's going to be earned in the future, maybe in that person's highest income earning years, or they've been spending and developing this life on their paycheck thinking that there was going to be this inheritance that both are going to live on. And you know, it's hard and it stinks, but divorce happens and promises get broken. And sometimes it's unintentional. No marriages fail. Communication breaks down. What was promised now is not going to happen. And it's really hard to navigate that clearly. You know, it brings me back as you're speaking, Michelle Smith, to this idea of fairness. You know, people, my clients often ask me, well, what do you think is fair? And of course, my idea of what's fair is what's fair based on New York state law, right? And and that that might not feel fair. And it usually doesn't feel fair to people going through this process. How do you deal with that in your practice? Fair is a four-letter word starting with F. Right. And divorce is not fair, right? Cancer isn't fair. Divorce isn't fair. Life happens, and all we can work with, no matter what state we live in, is what are the ruling divorce laws in our state. And again, it's an economic fact pattern. There are economics involved, and there are certain ways assets get split and support gets paid, and there are new guidelines in New York giving the courts guidance as to how much and what's fair. We're in that sandbox, and that's all we can work with. What's less fair is not working it out together with good counsel, with these what I call probable ranges of outcomes based on your economic fact pattern. What's less fair is not believing it from qualified counsel and financial people and saying, well, it just doesn't feel fair. I'm going to try in court. Who wants a judge? Judges don't even want to decide your outcome. They love people to settle, right? Courts are an emergency room. You should only go there for emergency intervention. Divorce isn't fair, but we have confines within divorce that we do have to deal with and advise people on. And then within that, how can we maximize the outcome for both parties? And more importantly, the children's life, the children's standard of living. You know, you're reminding me of something you said a little bit earlier, and that's that about the decisions you make early in the process. And I think what you're talking about are process choice decisions. How are you going to make the decisions that need to be fair? And, and how are you going to choose a decision-making process that makes sense for you? What are your comments about that? Yeah, I mean, look, again, there are outliers and divorce has anger. And depending on how somebody discovered something that went bad in a marriage or not, I understand the need for immediate hostile tactics, right? There are outliers and sometimes people just need that. 
and they're getting advice on an aggressive starting point. But I, for the life of me, can't understand how it's even going to be productive for the entire family, especially if there are little children, for getting a process server to show up outside of your children's school after you drop them off to slap divorce papers on you or an action when it hasn't even been discussed. Again, for the mass, you know, the non-outlier, how is that starting point going to make this any easier? So you need to think about what your goals are for this divorce. If your goals are fighting, a lot of expense, three to five years of torture in the process, then that's a, that's an option and probably the right option. But if your goal is to make sure your kids are okay, you have some sort of a relationship with the other parent post-divorce, you want to alleviate your stress and protect the money for your families instead of giving it to people like us, Catherine, <laughs> you need to think about your first move. You need to think about your first three moves. And there are way better ways to get divorced, as you know. And, you know, it's not even just the high road for the sake of taking the high road. I think you're much more likely to get a better result for yourself if you think through the process and think through the impact on the other person. I think it's just smart. It's not It's not just kind. Yeah. And, and look, most people haven't been divorced. Their divorce is often their first, you know, maybe their second with money. Maybe the first was easy because there were no kids. You know, this is a new quote unquote transaction. This is a new process. You do need to understand your divorce options. You Just like if you got a cancer diagnosis, you truly have to get an opinion and listen to the treatments being recommended, right? Divorce is no different. How do you start educating yourself? How do you start understanding the landscape? And before you shoot a missile, you wouldn't just go right into chemotherapy on hour two of understanding that you have cancer. You need to understand what the potential outcomes are given any course of action you can take and then let it marinate and synthesize for a bit to then let it let it get inside of you to say okay for me and this situation what's the best possible route that's great closing advice from michelle smith founder and chief executive uh, officer of smith financial strategies strategies group based in new york city thank you michelle it's been my pleasure to have you as our guest on dialogue on divorce today thank you Catherine. 